1: Hey
2: Chargers fans, this is the Guilty as Charged podcast where we discuss all things related to the Los Angeles Chargers. We are available on all podcast platforms including Apple, Spotify, and Google. If you like the show, please leave us a rating or review. We do really appreciate the positive feedback. Make sure and follow us on social media including our Patreon account where as little as $1 gains you access to cool things like jersey giveaways and film breakdowns. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Hey Chargers fans, welcome into to another episode of the Guilty as Charged podcast. I do want to start out by wishing the black mom of Kobe Bryant a happy birthday and rest in peace. Uh, hard to believe that that was seven months ago that uh, he passed away. Joining me today is Alex. Alex, how are you doing today, man?
1: Uh, I'm doing pretty good. I'm going to take the audience on a bit of a ride here. I want you to <laughs> imagine that you were making a 16-man practice squad. And you deliberately read up on these players... You were going through everything, and you were like, man, I think I put together a pretty good 16-man practice squad. Then you went to go write the article, you double-checked it twice, and still (laughs) you published it, and and your editor didn't even notice that you only put 15 players and left off uh, Derek Gore, who I apologize to Derek Gore. If you're out there and if you listen to this podcast, I apologize to Derek (laughs) Gore for accidentally leaving you off of the 16-man practice squad, so <laughs> I just want to give some people a little insight into what it's like to be a schizophrenic writer. <laughs> <laughs> a little schizophrenic writer, and uh, I did have an assignment
2: from my wife. She wanted me to ask Alex how uh, it feels to be a Sixers fan
1: right now. Who? Who? What team is them? Do they play someone? What? <laughs> But what team is that? I don't know who 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 is that. I know well so I know the Celtics won their series today and I know the Mavs won their game, but I actually don't know of a of a team called the Sixers. Did did, did they did they win the did they win any basketball? Did did they do the basketball any? Who are some of the players on that team?
2: Ah, uh, they they didn't hit any home runs. They didn't score oh.
1: any touchdowns or anything, man. I just, you know. It's a damn shame. Supposedly from Philadelphia, I don't know. I guess if they're not winning, maybe they should fire everyone or something.
2: <laughs> good stuff man good stuff so I, I actually do want to talk about um the practice squad because there have been uh quite a few players who are, are in roster battles who have been kind of getting so, some uh some buzz from the beat writers lately um and i want to start with the tight end position um uh, me and you have talked uh, several times about how um you know, we kind of wish that the Chargers had had done a little more in the offseason in case of a Hunter Henry injury. But uh, one of my main concerns with Donald Parham is how he would be able to handle the physicality uh, of the NFL, transitioning from the XFL, obviously. But the the beat writers have noted several times, including Daniel Popper, that uh, he has been excellent as a blocker. Um, Coach Anthony Lynn has kind of taken uh, an eye on him as well and has continued to to be around Parham to see how he blocks. And um, you know, I think Parham is having a really good camp from from all accounts, and, and Steven Anderson has made some plays as well. Um, and this was kind of a question that I got on Twitter a few times. If you're the Chargers, would you consider keeping both Parham and Steven Anderson and rolling with four tight ends instead of risking one of them maybe not clearing waivers and – and not bringing them back to the practice squad?
1: Um, I think at the end of the day, I would still go down to three, and I feel, I would feel pretty good about it as well. Like, I understand the thought process of keeping four, but I think ultimately at the end of the day that you have to keep three, because if, you know, something happens, like, say, you know, our worst fears are realized, and Hunter Henry were to get hurt, I don't think you're playing Donald Parham or Steven Anderson in place of Hunter Henry, right? You're likely re- uh, you know, signing somebody like Lance Kendricks or somebody who's kind of familiar with playing that role um, in that capacity. So I, I feel like you probably wouldn't keep four. I would just go with whoever you think is better between Anderson and Parham. If I had to guess right now, I'd still say that would be Parham because they said that they're Kind of about even in all facilities that if you said fire um, might have a bit of an edge when it comes to blocking. So, I uh, I would still roll with three. Plus, you know, the other thing is they have to keep a, you know, they're likely going to keep a fullback. They technically don't have to. But um, if you're going to keep, you know, Neighbors or Holly, then I, I don't see a world in which they're going to keep four tight ends. But, uh, you know, crazier things have happened. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I think that is spot on, and I, I agree with you. I don't think uh, keeping four tight ends and a fullback makes sense. Um, also of note is that Tyrod Taylor and Virgil Green seem to have a really nice relationship going. Um, both the Chargers' social media and the b writers have uh, noted that relationship that's that's been uh, developing, and um, you know Virgil's made a few good plays in camp so far from what I've seen. So the tight end position. Um, I do feel a little better about after having you know a week or so of training camp. Um, any other roster battles that you think specifically impact the the year 16 uh, practice squad rise?
1: Six oh, any kind of roster battles? Uh, I mentioned this one in my article, but I felt that Cortez Rufton, uh could be a potential practice squatter just because uh, they have Linval Joseph now. Uh, and they re-signed Damian Square, so they're kind of running it back. So that creates one less spot, really, at D tackle, in my opinion. But I don't think they would want to lose Brofton. Um, but it it kind of depends. I I you know seventh round pick last year. You know I think it might be tough for him, uh, or you know maybe they'll keep another defensive tackle on the practice squad. I don't know, but I could see him being a potential practice squad guy. And I also mentioned in my article. Uh, Emeka Boule who I think just because they also brought in Kenneth Murray, um, I think he's a guy that could potentially get a demotion as well a little bit just because, you know, they're adding uh, to the linebacker so much. So I would go with those. Those two guys were kind of like the chargers of, you know, past rosters that really factored into my uh, roster as well, or my 16-man practice squad as well as Easton Stick. Um, yeah, I had him on the practice squad just because uh, I think Herbert now, I think he has to be permanent backup QB and I think you have to give Herbert as many reps as you can at this point.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's something that we saw out of uh, practice, I believe on Monday um, when Justin Herbert was kind of working on the opposite field and, and you know getting all the reps over there with Pep Hamilton. So um, those are good points as well. I do want to mention that um, we are going to do our Broncos a, uh, our Broncos preview today. Our good friend Travis Wakeman is going to be joining us uh, later on, so we'll get to that. Um, and kind of the big news in the NFL today was obviously the Earl Thomas situation. I particularly don't think that there's any chance that Earl Thomas uh, signs with the charters, but it is a question that um, some people have asked me. There, There's still a lot... Uh, unknown about the situation of in baltimore it's been rumored that he's been late a bunch of times uh that this fight with uh chuck clark i believe his name was uh was not the first altercation that earl thomas has been in with teammates and then obviously he had the whole situation with his brother and his wife which i don't want to get into details um <laughs> if you don't know what i'm talking about I'll google it it's it's quite the crazy story but
1: TMZ.com.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, what did you make of the Earl Thomas uh, situation being released by the Ravens, and uh, how little of a chance do you give him signing with the
1: Chargers? Um, I thought it was an interesting situation, especially because we're only, what, two and a half weeks out from the season, really. Um, So it's pretty late in the game to cut him. Granted, you know, training camp only started really like two weeks ago. So, they, you know, I wonder if this would have happened in, you know, uh, say... You know, July or even earlier in uh, off-season, kind of uh, you know, OTAs. You know, if something would have happened like this, so. But apparently, he did have an altercation last year. Uh, so this isn't the first fight with a teammate in Baltimore. And then, as we said, there's also not a t- popular guy in the locker room. There was obviously, as you mentioned, you know, the altercations he got into in the off-season. Um, so it, it wasn't shocking. I would say, you know, because he was supposed to be your starting free safety two weeks from the season, that's surprising. But I mean, he was only owed $10 million more guaranteed. And, you know, I've heard that there's a bunch of ways that the Ravens can actually get out of that. Um, you know, with the idea of, you know, fi- you know, hit, whatever language is in his contract, there was actually a way that they could have done it where they could have suspended him and then released him, but apparently, uh, they wanted to just be done with him altogether and, you know, fight with the money later, um, but yeah, ultimately, ultimately, I just think it was shocking from the standpoint of when it's happening, but it wasn't that shocking when you consider the kind of past of Earl Thomas and also, uh, you know, how prepared the Ravens are at secondary, they do have Chuck Clark, uh, and as well as other guys that, you know, losing Earl Thomas isn't as big of a deal to the Ravens as it would be to say, you know, if Dallas had signed Earl Thomas, right, Dallas, Dallas's secondary is kind of um in a full-on, yeah, <laughs> awful, I was gonna <laughs> say full-on rebuilding mode to be polite, Uh there but yeah, Dallas's secondary is kind of awful, so, You know, I think if he was in a different situation other than Baltimore, this move would be very risky, but because it's Baltimore um, and they're defensively pretty sound, I honestly don't think the Ravens are going to feel a dramatic effect from it.
2: Yeah, I mean, the Ravens are as well-run of an organization as there is in the league, so... You know, this kind of says a lot about how they view the talent around uh, Earl Thomas. And, you know, they have a great group of corners. Marlon Humphrey, Jimmy Smith is pretty solid. And Marcus Peters in a right situation like he is. in Baltimore is really good as well. So, you know, it says a lot about how they view the talent and how, you know, they view Earl Thomas. And they didn't want to put up with his with his crap. And like you mentioned, they were just kind of sick of him. So I did want to also mention before we get into our Broncos uh, preview. Um, Unfortunately, it did come out today that Mike Williams did suffer an injury. Um, In classic Mike Williams fashion, it happened, you know, him going for a jump ball and, you know, he just fell kind of hard, unfortunately, it seems like. Um, There have been some kind of conflicting reports about optimism or kind of pessimism as well. Um, As far as we know, the only facts are that his collarbone is fine which is good news um, in terms of you know maybe separating his shoulder or anything like that. We don't really know. Um, and then also Chris Harris has missed uh, practice the last few days. It was believed at first that Chris Harris was just dealing with some kind of cramps or some soreness. Um, but Anthony Lynn today said that he's been dealing with a, a bit more of a grab on his leg than previously thought. So they're kind of being precautious with him. Um, what do you make of the whole Mike Williams and Chris Harris injury situation going on?
1: So, the Mike Williams thing seems like it's fine for now. Um, just because of Mike Williams' play style and the way that he goes up for jump balls, I think he's just going to put himself in kind of that injury, you know, I think he's going to get injured at certain points, uh, as long as it's not a serious break, like as they said, the collarbone is fine, um... You know, if it's a small shoulder dislocation, like, you know, not to say shoulder dislocation is small, but, you know, I think that that's something they can deal with better than, obviously, a broken collarbone or something like that. So, you know, I think just his play style is kind of something that uh, is going to get him into those positions. The one thing I would like to say about Mike Williams is just, like, you know, the way that he goes up for jump balls and the way that we've seen him take hits... Uh, in his first couple years in the league. That's one of the things that makes me want to see a little bit more route running from him, just kind of not necessarily Keenan Allen style, obviously still using his size, but I would like to see him be a little bit more safer and a little less reckless with the ball. Um, As for Chris Harris, I don't think that that's concerning. Probably just one of those better days off um, I don't think that that's particularly concerning to me. Uh, I guess we'll see if it develops into something later, but they've been talking about, as, as we mentioned last episode, that, uh, Balaga, Harris, some of the other players, uh, a, a lot of them are, you know, kind of sore, uh, or, you know, kind of reported feelings of general, like, soreness, just because, you know, it, it's the first time that they practice and it's an unusual, uh, year in that capacity, so... I think there's going to be a lot of, you know, those kind of Chris Harris veteran off days, um, you know, maybe between now and the next two weeks for a lot of the guys who have been in the league eight, nine, uh, 10 years.
2: Yeah, and Coach Lynn mentioned that uh, they are tracking kind of the data and output that the Chargers players are going through, and so um, they're being very cautious about the whole thing. The last thing anyone wants right now is to, to overwork someone, especially a veteran guy who they just signed, and like Chris Harris or Brian Bulaga. So that's uh they are being careful, which is is good in that sense that they're trying to avoid injury. But it's also good, I think, specifically in the Chris Harris thing, because that means that Desmond King and Asir Adderley are getting all the first team reps. They're getting as many reps as possible, and, and this gives the Chargers kind of a window to figure out who has the edge uh, on you know being that fifth, sixth defensive back and having that you know work itself out and um, when Chris Harris first practice, it was reported that Nasir Adderley was the first team slot corner Um, and then today I believe Daniel Popper mentioned that Desmond King was back there with the first team Um, so like I mentioned you know Coach Lynn has basically said you know it's too early to tell right now no one really has an edge but I do think this uh, opportunity is good for Chris Harris and Nasir Adderley as for the Mike Williams situation, you know, like you mentioned, I just think uh, he's got to develop into a point where he's not just a jump ball guy, and it seems like he's doing that. Every coach has talked about his uh, improvement in that department so far, which is really nice to see. And you know, I love the aspect of Mike Williams where he's willing to put his body on the line to to go get these jump balls. Um, but at the same time, I'm I'm hopeful that he's not so reliant on that aspect of his game going forward. And uh, more than anything, you know, he he was basically hurt all season last year. Yeah. Um, he hurt his knee against Detroit, I believe. And then it kind of just bothered him throughout the year, and he just toughed it out. And so, you know, being that bothered by knee pain and knee injuries and still having 1,000 yards is quite impressive. Uh, I'm hopeful that he doesn't have to be – constantly injured and just have to tough out 16 game seasons every single year. Right. Um I think
1: it's one thing to tough out a 16 game season like that when you're in your kind of mid 20s. It's different to do that when you're, you know, in your, you know, going into your close to 30s uh in the NFL and right. once you have a few years under your belt, you know, kind of it kind of gets harder to do that, I think. Um so that's yeah, as I said, one of the reasons I'd like to see him, you know, he said he did say that he worked with DeAndre Hopkins a little bit in the off to be uh, improve his route running a little bit, so that that's a good thing to hear. Um, but yeah, I, I'd like to see him become a little bit more of a route runner, get a little more separation, you know, so you're not taking uh, a big hit on each play.
2: Yeah, and that definitely uh, leads us into the next topic of conversation, which is is kind of the wide receiver three spot. Um, again, a little too early to to have like a clear front runner. Um, But there hasn't been a whole lot of buzz about Joe Reed right now. It kind of seems that KJ Hill and Jalen Guyton are getting more of the buzz, which is fine. You know, Joe Reed I think is going to have a role on this team. Um, I just don't know how big it's going to be this year and KJ Hill is, is certainly more pro ready, but you know, there's been this whole thing about the chargers need more speed and that's not really KJ Hill's game. So, um what do you make of the wide
1: receiver three at spot at this point i don't know quite what to make of it i mean you know we've seen beat reporters put out something and then the coaching staff does something totally different so you know that's true without a preseason you know without a preseason and that's the thing we really don't have a great tool for evaluation that we can see ourselves so it's it's hard to see it's hard to say in that regard i would say that you know, I've kind of pegged Joe Reed as the third receiver because I think he's the most complete one out of the, out of those guys. Um, Joe Reed is a guy who can go over the top. Uh, I think he, you know, can turn. I, I did a bit of a film study on him, but I view him as more complete than say KJ Hill. To me, if I would, you know, I would put KJ Hill probably as the fourth, and then have KJ Hill be a bit of that slot presence. Right, if you do run a four receiver set. But I would honestly have Joe Reed as the third receiver, just because I think he has more speed and uh, is a bit more of a proficient, uh, I would say, pass catcher than uh, KJ Hill. KJ Hill works really well out of the slot, but he also played 90% of his snaps in college in the slot. So you know, to to be a complete, you know, it it also yeah that depends. It depends what they want out of a wide receiver three. Do they want a guy who's going to be playing? 90% of his snaps in the slot, or do they want a guy who can be a problem all over the field? That's, you know, it's it's one of the things that I don't really know about Coach Lynn's philosophy as he goes into making this decision. Um, So I would say that I would probably have, you know... And this is obviously not based on anything in training camp because I haven't seen anything in training camp personally myself because of the year that it is. And also, I don't live in California anyway, so even if there was no (laughs) pandemic, uh, I would not be able to see training camp. But I would just say that I think Joe Reed is the most complete receiver as of now who I think that they can put in there. I think Jalen Guyton has the speed where if they want to put him at wide receiver three, things can be interesting, but I don't think he's the most complete route runner. And then K.J. Hill is kind of the opposite, where he's really great route runner, but he doesn't really get speed. I, I think Joe Reed is honestly the best balance between those two. Um, so I would probably honestly have something like Joe Reed, wide receiver three, K.J. Hill, wide receiver four from the slot, and then Jalen Guyton is kind of like the fifth guy. That's kind of how I would view the situation right now, but obviously I'm not seeing, you know, what the beat reporters are seeing every day in training camp and practice.
2: Yeah, that that really is the tough situation right now because we have no way to see it or have, you know, known fan videos or anything. We're all just trusting Daniel Popper, Gilbert Monzano, yeah. Fernando Ramirez, Jeff Miller. So
1: and those guys um, are they all, do those guys are all great, right? So right, I'm not saying don't trust them, but it wouldn't shock me if like. They see something a different way, and then the coaching staff sees something a different way. So, you know, um, like, you know, one of the things that's being reported in training camp is the the Bobby Holly versus Gabe Neighbors battle. And everyone's trying to, like, figure out signs to, you know, where the coaches are leading <laughs> there. Um, yeah. Right, so, you know, you hear one day, it's like, oh, well, Coach Lynn pulled neighbors aside, so he has a personal interest in neighbors, so maybe he values him. And then, oh, well, Bobby Holly had a really good rep, and he nailed this. It's like, you know, we're all trying to kind of make out the craziness to mean something, but sometimes things just don't necessarily mean something. So, we're all kind of trying to to read, uh, maybe writing in a sense that's not there. So i would say you know while i i appreciate the beat writers and all the coverage that they're doing especially when it came to popper and reporting well on the melvin ingram situation for example um i i would say that i would say to take their reporting more cautiously than saying oh well you know daniel popper said this so then the roster will be this right so because right. coach lynn can always go another way or shane steichen can have another idea um than daniel popper gilbert manzano
2: yes absolutely and you're totally spot on it's just you know when you're reading these reports it's we have to keep in mind that well daniel popper specifically does this is that he's reporting just on that one specific day mm-hmm. of practice and so you know he's reacting to what he's seen that one day and it's just the reality of the business you know bobby holly might have a good practice one day and gabe neighbors might have a better practice the next day so um I think the running back position has kind of been the most over the map, and that's something that we've seen right. so far. Is like the, after the first pad of practice, it was like Justin Jackson has clear edge for running back two spot, and then like the next day, it was like Joshua Kelly is really good, and it's like, <laughs> and, then, and then even today, our 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 big man uh, Darius Bradwell had a really good practice. Apparently, so it's like you know the running back position is so kind of uh, volatile in a sense that. You know, one guy can have a couple good runs one day and look really good, and the next day he doesn't get that many reps. And right. so um, definitely what you're saying is just be, take the the writing with a grain of salt. Obviously, they're doing a fantastic job. And, and you know, we have to eat that up because we're not there. Right. We have no access, <laughs> no preseason
1: games. Yeah. But... I wouldn't say necessarily with a grain of salt. I would say try to view it all cumulatively, right? So, you know, if, as you said, Um, you know, Bobby Holly has a really great day practice than Gabe Neighbors does, right? Try to, like, maybe keep track a little bit of, like, who's having more standout days, you know, per these writers. Or, you know, in the case of Justin Jackson and Joshua Kelly, like, where do the writers lean, right? If, if, you know, four of them are saying Joshua Kelly had a really good day and four of them are saying Justin Jackson had a really good day, that doesn't really give us a decisive edge as to who had a really good day, Um, so I would just say not so much to take it with a grain of salt, but to look at it cumulatively, read everything that's coming out every day, but also kind of stick to your own, um, kind of opinions. If you truly see something uh, a little bit differently in terms of maybe how the roster should be constructed, like, uh, my undying support for Joe Reed as the third receiver. (laughs) No, I think that's a fine
2: opinion. You know, I think Joe Reed definitely offers the most versatility of that group. Um, similar to, I think, Joshua Kelly offers a lot more versatility than Justin Jackson because he can go in between the tackles more often than Justin Jackson can. So we'll see. Really, you know, outside of uh, the obvious positions, you know, the position battles we're not going to be able to know, really, until the, the week of cuts. And also, so I'm,
1: I'm sorry, uh, Tyler, if you're listening to this podcast uh i did write about how i prefer gabe neighbors a little bit over bobby holly i apologize (laughs) i apologize but yeah well i
2: i we me and you were having this conversation the other day and you know what i said to you is really you know bobby holly had 30 minutes of film on youtube and gabe neighbors had like a few clips and so it was always possible that gabe neighbors could come in and just you know shock us all and that seems like what is what is kind of happening and um, you know, it's just going to depend on what kind of style of fullback do they want? Do they want someone that's a bruiser that's just going to knock people back? Like Bobby Holly went head up with Denzel Perryman, who's arguably the biggest, most physical linebacker on the team, and Bobby Holly stood him up and made this impressive block. So mm-hmm. it's just going to depend. Do they want someone that's a little more finesse and can run some more routes? Maybe line All up right. at tight end and H back, or do they want someone that's just going to blow? I people think also up and clear some, uh, some special running teams. Lanes?
1: I, I would also say special teams a little bit, too. That was another distinction is, like, yeah. Um, Gabe Neighbors has a little bit of speed to him, right? I mean, they split him out wide. They put him in the slot uh, versus, you know, and also, you know, the Chargers last four years haven't had the most physical fullback, right? Derek Watt was kind of not a jack-of-all-trades, but, you know, he could run the ball a little bit, uh, go out for a pass, you know, every now and then. Uh, we all remember that he was robbed of a touchdown uh, in the Ravens playoff game. Uh, right. But, yeah, so I, I think it's not necessarily about having the most dynamic fullback, uh, or, you know, it's not necessarily about having the most powerful fullback, as they showed, you know, having Derek all those years and him being such a key contributor uh, on special teams, especially in 2019. So I think it'll just be about... Um, you know, which, which does Lynn see as the better fit more than like, you know, does he want uh, a running back and, or fullback in a Lorenzo Neal style or Derek Watt? Like, I don't, I don't know if it's so much that it's just who fits the team better, but um, yeah, I guess we'll see Holly versus neighbors.
2: Yeah, definitely. We'll see. So uh, we're going to transition now into our interview and discussion with our good friend, Travis Wakeman. Uh, Give it a listen. All right guys, so happy to be joined now by Travis Wakeman who used to be the site expert of Boltbeat and is now the site expert at Predominantly Orange. Uh, we've worked closely with him over the over the last couple of years and uh coincidentally today is Alex's 3 year anniversary of Boltbeat, so it's a a fun little fun little day. Uh Travis, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Doing well, man. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. And of course, <laughs> and Alex, happy anniversary of, of Boltbeat. How's it feel for
1: the last three years? Uh, it's good. I appreciate uh, Travis uh, letting me join Bold Beat after reading uh, Cardiel Jones versus Kellen Clemens, who should be the Chargers backup. That's <laughs> my <laughs> <laughs> first article. But, uh, yeah, no, it uh, feels good. and I want to keep writing and keep podcasting. So, yeah. Yeah, it's
2: been it's been a fun ride for me as well. I think my, my first article at Bold Beat was if Melvin Ingram was actually the team's MVP or not. And uh, I think I remember, I think it did pretty well, but uh, obviously things have changed. Travis is now writing for Pranodly Orange and we are doing our Broncos preview today. So we'll dive into that. Um, Travis, we had had a bunch of conversations over the last few years and especially last season about the Broncos and how they were doing uh, with John Elway as the GM and how everything was going with him and whether his seat was hot or not. Um, How do you think things have changed about the Broncos perspective about uh, John Elway after this draft, because we all know that he had a very good draft. Do you think he bought himself a couple more years of uh, a cooler seat than last year?
3: Absolutely. I mean, when you talk to Broncos fans, you'll find very few of them will ever say anything negative about John Elway no matter what he does. So it's hard to ever feel like the seat was really hot unless you're inside that office. Um, but I do think that this draft did help him out. I mean, there's been little argument about what he did. I mean, he surrounded Drew Locke with about as many playmakers as he could possibly have. And there really are no excuses for, you know, an offense that's only going to go out and score 13 points a game this year. So hopefully for them that, you know, they're going to be a much higher scoring offense because I think the defense is going to come with Vic Bangio there. And I think that's the belief that most people have.
1: Um, most interesting part for me about the Broncos this year, or the most interesting unit on the team is the secondary to me, uh, specifically cornerbacks. Because, uh, Chris Harris, obviously, longtime slot corner, he was playing the outside last year, uh, he came to the Chargers, and now that kind of leaves uh, a hole kind of in his absence. So now it's sort of looking like, um, you know, I, w- I want your opinion on this. It, it kind of looks like Bryce Callahan is go- and um, A.J. Bouye are going to be the top two corners on the roster. And then um, Michael Lujemudia is someone who they have uh, really high expectations for, but don't know if he'll start at the gate, potentially starting in a nickel role. Um, so I kind of want to get your feeling on uh, this uh, Broncos cornerback unit after Chris Harris. Yeah, I wrote not long ago about how I think the cornerback position
3: is probably the weakest on the team currently, and it's because of all the question marks there. I mean, Callahan could be a good option, but you don't know that because he didn't play a single down last year, so I think they're hoping on that being a good situation. If it's not, then I think they've got problems. You know, you've got O.J. Muriel, like you brought up, but then you've got Devontae Bosby who also spent most of the year injured last year so there is a lot of question marks at the cornerback position I know a lot of the guys that work with us over at Predominantly Orange and a lot of fans have expected them to go after a veteran cornerback this offseason and they just never did so cornerback is definitely a big question mark right now to say the least
2: that sounds familiar that sounds a lot like what people thought about the Chargers and potentially signing Chris Harris or not so um, I do actually want to talk about Jarrell Casey because I think the Broncos are really able to steal him away from the Titans the 1st seventh round pick that's a no-brainer to me um, what do you think he brings to this team and and how much pressure he can take off of you know uh, Bradley Chubb and Vaughn Miller specifically as a pass rush going into the
3: offseason I felt like the, the defensive line was the biggest problem the team had because you had you know, Derek Wolf was a free agent. Adam Gotsis, they pretty much gave up on him. Shelby Harris was a free agent. So there was a lot of, you know, what ifs there. I think the trade for Casey was huge. I think you can make an argument that it might be the best trade of the entire offseason that any team made. So, you know, they brought him in, they convinced Shelby Harris to come back. And all of a sudden the defensive line went from a major weakness to a major sprint, possible strength. And, having a guy like Casey, who's you know, multi-time Pro Bowler, I believe, you know, having him right there in the middle to, you know, take away some of that attention so you can get those pass rushers to come off the edge, you know, obviously a huge feather in the cap there. So looking forward to seeing what he can do.
1: Um, I also want to get your take a little bit on the offensive line. Uh, Cause you have Dalton Reisner who I really like a lot, but, Outside of that, uh, it's three guys really in Cushenberry, uh Glasgow, who came over from Detroit, uh, and uh, now Wilkinson is kind of stepping into that right tackle uh, spot after, uh, it was, yeah, Jawan James opted out of the season. Um, and Bowles has been up and down, you know. <laughs> there's already a holding penalty probably on him before the season starts. Uh, <laughs> but... It, uh, yeah, so I, I want to get your take on that offensive line and how, you, what are your expectations for how they'll protect Drew Locke and how they'll kind of facilitate the running game?
3: I think Drew Locke being a little bit more mobile than, say, Joe Flacco was last year. I mean, I think we had five sacks total once Locke came in as the starter. And all of a sudden, Bowles didn't look so bad. I, I'm pretty sure I've talked to Steven about this before and said that I'm not as down on Bowles as just about every other Broncos fan seems to be. Um, I, I've said all along that I thought Juwan James was a way bigger weakness than Bulls was, and, you know, then he opts out. So they've got Wilkinson. They just went and signed DeMar Dotson, who's like an 11-year veteran, played for the Buccaneers for his entire career. So we'll see what he can do. Um, offensive line, you know, could be shaky because I don't think there's a name that, you know, you get really excited about on there, except for maybe Reisner, but uh, I'm not as worried about it as most people seem to be in talking about that offensive line, and I'm confident in what Locke can do to avoid pressure, as opposed to a guy like Flacco or Case Keenum or some of these guys they've had the last couple years.
2: Yeah, the offensive line dynamic is, is interesting, and Garrett Bowles, you know, I He's one of the better stories in the league. I, I don't know if it, many people are familiar with it, but uh he started his football career super late and was just, you know, so physically imposing at the University of Utah and when he announced that he was going pro, I think a lot of people in Utah were surprised because he was so just raw. He, there was like basically no technique going on. Um he did have the offense the offseason workout video of the year for me because he was like lifting all his weights and then randomly threw in an alley-oop dunk that he did (laughs) in his front yard (laughs) um but i you know as much as you know i'm rooting for him as an individual i think he has that potential it's just a matter of of getting that right coaching chemistry i don't really know but you know i i think the potential is there very similar with like a guy like trey pipkins or sam Tevy for charters fans You know, it's just a matter of finding that sweet spot with the coaches and with the other guys around him as well. I agree, and I think, you know,
3: as some people have pointed out, I feel like he's almost developed a target on his back for these referees, to throw these flags, because you can, you know, some of his holding penalties are blatant, but some of them aren't just like, you know, that could have gone either way. And I feel like he almost – he's got the kind of temperament too when you watch him on the field. I feel like he almost gets
2: picked on a little bit. Yeah, so that's something that he'll have to focus on as an individual. But I also want to talk about the guys that they are going to be creating running lanes for. Uh, the Melvin Gordon signing was interesting. We talked a bit about this on draft night. And, you know, I think the Melvin Gordon, Austin Eckler dynamic worked really well because they were so different. But I don't really think that Philip Lindsay it has the kind of skill set that Austin Eckler has as a receiving back. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on the dynamic between Melvin Gordon and Phil Klinsky.
3: It's going to be one of the biggest questions that I think a lot of people have this year is how that's going to work. In the media, you know, Lindsay's played it off like, you know, it's just another guy he's going to work with. It's competition, it drives him, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know if he really believes that. I think he, I think he probably took a little bit of offense to the team signing him. You know, Lindsay's had back-to-back 1,000-year seasons. There's no undrafted. Yeah player that's ever done that. Um, So I think he did take it as a little bit of a slap to the face, but um, there's no reason to not be excited about what Gordon can do as long as he's on the field. I mean, I think we knew when he was with the Chargers, you know, there was, you know, he wasn't, he was a great player when he was on the field. It was just a contract thing. So I would be excited about what the two can do together. I hope that they have the type of chemistry where they get along and there's no fighting for touches and things like that.
1: Yeah, so I'm kind of mixed on the Melvin Gordon signing. I don't, yeah, as, as Steven said, I'm not sure I see the utility in it just because I, I think they were kind of fine without him. And honestly, if I were the Broncos, you know, if I were John Elway, I think it might have been better to draft it back late and see what he could have done. But, you know, honestly, at the price that they got him at, because his value was kind of uh, kind of low, they did get him for a decent two-year, $16 million deal, so they didn't have to give him, you know, uh, a long contract or, like, a super extensive one. Um, and then, yeah, the thing that I want to touch on is also the receivers, because uh, they have Jerry Judy, who they took in the draft, K.J. Hamler, who I like a lot that they took in the draft, and obviously returning from last year is the. Courtland Sutton, and I uh, <laughs> can't count the amount of times I've seen on Twitter Broncos fans posting the highlight of Courtland Sutton catching that impossible ball over Casey Hayward. But, um, right. yeah, you know, he's, he's an athletic receiver. Um, I, I kind of want to get who, who are some depth guys outside of Judy, Sutton, and Hamler uh, that we should watch out for
3: maybe in that receiving group. Yeah, that's a good question because I don't know that there is a lot of depth behind them. They've got Deshaun Hamilton, uh, fourth round pick a couple of years ago, has been a bit of a disappointment, wrote about him today being a disappointment and, and the team could possibly explore trading him. They've got Tim Patrick, big athletic guy, jump ball type guy. Um, he's got health issues, seems like more than he doesn't. Beyond that, they've got Juwan Winfrey. Uh, he suffered a hamstring injury already in training camp. So there's not a lot behind those three guys. I think they're they're going to be counting a lot on those three guys. And then, of course, Noah Fant is going to be used more like a wide receiver than he is a tight end. So I think you're seeing why they use their first two picks on wide receivers
2: because there just wasn't much there. Right. Right, they they definitely had to go out and get Drew Lock some help, and they certainly did that. Obviously, all, they also drafted uh, Albert O. I'm not even gonna try and say his last name. Um, <laughs> I feel bad for the PA announcer and stuff like that that always has to say his last name. But uh, this ultimately, this Broncos team is going to come down to whether or not Drew Lock is legit. Uh, I know we've talked about this privately, but. Um, you know, Colin Coward has gone as far as saying that he thinks Drew Locke could be, like, a potential dark horse MVP candidate. Uh, where do you land right now as of August 16th on the, the Drew Locke hype train? Colin Coward's way too high on him. I, mean,
3: <laughs> um, I like him. There's there's uh, not a lot to not like about him right now. He he looked awesome in the, in the five games he played in last year you know, and, and his detractors will say it came against, you know, bottom-ranked defenses in the league, and it did. But I liked how he came off ready to go. I mean, he he looked fluid. He looked like he understood the offense. He, he looked really good. He gave the team something I haven't seen it have for many years. And so I feel like if he can continue to build on all that, especially with the talent they put around him, yeah, there, there's a lot to be excited about. League MVP is way too much, but uh, you know, he could be a Pro Bowl-type quarterback down the road, I feel like.
1: With Drew Locke, for me, uh, I really like what I saw at him last year. Uh, I like what he showed off in the Houston game, uh, particularly. Just um, kind of very accurate and also a very good decision maker um, in that one. I don't know what to make of the five-game sample size, and I've given up tried to <laughs> on uh, trying to evaluate these quarterbacks who come in at the end of the year. Uh, I was so high on Jimmy Garoppolo and now I hate Jimmy Garoppolo. So, <laughs> uh, I, I've given up trying to evaluate that, but I, I like what I've seen out of Drew Locke and obviously Denver has, has surrounded him with a lot of talent. Um, yeah. As I've talked about, I think with the offensive line, I think is a big key there. If they can protect him and keep him upright, I think he has a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities to make some big plays with, uh Lindsey Gordon and obviously that uh you know three-headed receiving duo uh duo Sutton Hamler and Judy Yeah it'll be really interesting to see how all of that pans out. Uh
2: we'll get you out of here on this Travis. I think, you know, obviously everybody is is chasing the Kansas City Chiefs. Um what kind of chances do you give the Broncos of potentially challenging uh the Chiefs for the the division title this year? Um
3: if I'm going to be honest, not many. Um, the Chiefs are just a juggernaut right now. They didn't lose hardly anybody this offseason. Right. In fact, they might have only gotten better with the addition of Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. Um, that's going to, you know, their offense their yeah. is still going to score 40. you got to score, you know, 42 points to beat that team. I don't think the Broncos have the offense yet. I don't think they have the defense to stop what Mahomes is able to do. But I think maybe next year. I think the Broncos could potentially be a, you know, now you got that extra wild card team this year. So I think the Broncos could potentially be a wild card team. They're not ready to be AFC West champions this year.
2: I think that's a, a fair statement. So, where do you, in terms of like the sweet spot of outcomes, like where do you, what do you think the Broncos window is this year?
3: I think that's what it is. I think, you know, being that sixth or seventh wild card team, maybe, you know, nine and seven, maybe if they get really lucky, they could go 10 and six but you could just as easily be looking at a, a 7 and 9 an team eight and 8 and team. they're right in that
1: that area I feel like uh, every fan every year wants their team to be 9 and 7 10 and 6 <laughs> when they look <laughs> at the schedule and go yeah we could go 10 and 6 right uh, i do that with the chargers every year but um, yeah i uh, yeah i'm high on the broncos and i could see them going 9 and 7 10 and 6 as well
2: it's interesting to me. We had this conversation with uh, one of the writers at the Raider site, and it really feels like the three teams outside of the Chiefs, all three of them could go between, like, 7 and 9 and 10 and 6. So, I agree. Uh, it's going to be a really I'm interesting 2020. Like and two, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be really interesting to see how the whole race for second place goes. But I do agree. I think the, the Chiefs probably, like, worst-case scenario for the Chiefs is, like, 13 and 3. Yeah. It
3: really is. That team's just really good. And like I said, they – I mean, who'd they lose this year?
2: I can't think of anybody they lost.
3: Yeah. Uh, It
2: was – Kendall Fuller was like their really only starter loss. I mean, they replaced Duvernay Tardif with, you know, an equivalent player in Koleki Yosemele. So, really, it's just Fuller. And Alex – I mean, we've had this conversation. Alex doesn't even think that's that big of a deal.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that also benefits the Chiefs is they are the defending Super Bowl champions in a year where not not many of the other teams have had much of an offseason to improve. So it's like they're kind of running it back while every other team is trying to catch up to them. But not many of the other teams have had a lot of time to catch up to them. So Good point. It's, um, I think that's one of the things that's going to be a big um, plot line in this uh, season. And it's curious, you know, how it would have gone if uh, this offseason was normal versus uh, how it is now. But I think the offseason definitely gives the Chiefs uh, a bit of advantage because they brought everyone back and have um, a very experienced coach. Yeah,
2: I think, honestly, if the Super Bowl were 49ers and Chiefs again, I would not be surprised at all. I could agree with that. Well, Travis, this has been really fun. We thank you for your time. You know, I we're looking it. forward to football being back. We're Me approximately too. one month away. And uh, if you are ever looking to read up some uh, read up on the Broncos, make sure and check out Predominantly Orange and Travis Wakeman on Twitter. Uh, Travis, thanks for your time, man. Absolutely. Thank thanks, you, guys. I appreciate it. So yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed that discussion. Uh, That obviously was the last of our discussions with um, our fellow fan side writers for the other teams. Um, Before we get into the Broncos' schedule, um, we've now kind of talked with these other writers, and I kind of want to talk about the overall hierarchy of the AFC West. And you know, we keep we've kept on saying like really second place is anyone's game, Um, but. What what is your gut feeling right now on how the the AFC West will
1: pan out in 2020? Um, my gut feeling, if I had to make kind of like a record and like standings and stuff like that, I'd say the Chiefs probably end up at like 13 and three, 12 and four, basically where they've been the last couple of years. I think the Chargers wind up at nine and seven, ten and six. Um. I think the Broncos, I have the Broncos finishing third, so I have the Broncos a little bit behind the Chargers. Um, that might just be, you know, honestly, the Broncos and Chargers could both be 9-7, or one's 10-6, and six, and one's 8-8. Eight and eight. Uh, I think the teams are very close. If you made me pick a team between those two, I would say the Chargers have a slightly better roster, and they do have the more experienced quarterback. You know, we haven't seen a full year uh, of Drew Locke. Um, so that's kind of my hesitance to go all in with them. Plus, the Broncos do have the holes, I think, similar to the Chargers, but on the opposite side of the offensive line. Uh, and they also have the kind of weird secondary, especially in the cornerback room, which is going to be a totally new cornerback uh, group. So I have a couple questions on the Broncos. Probably more questions than I have on the Chargers. Uh, at least to this point. But, so yeah, I'd probably go Cheeks 1, Chargers 2, Broncos 3, and then Raiders 4. And I think they're kind of, honestly, like a distant 4. But, uh, yeah, that's sort of how I see the hierarchy playing out right now. I
2: agree with you, and I do think the Raiders are a distant 4. I think the Raiders, their roster town is certainly better. You know, they did have a have a few picks in the draft that I think could, could pan out. And, you know, with another year of growth from, you know, Darren Waller, Max Crosby, I think they could be in, in a little better shape, but I just don't know really how many, you know, blue chip talent players they have. And, you know, that's, that's my biggest issue with the roster is, you know, they have a lot of scrappy guys and they have a lot of like physically raw players who, you know, maybe Henry Ruggs does become you know the next Tyree Kill. I think it's more likely that he becomes like a Ted Ginn type player. So we'll see how that pans out. But I do agree with you. I
1: uh, I don't think Henry Ruggs will become the next C.D. Lamb. Uh, so <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's kind of my issue
1: with the Raiders draft.
2: But <laughs> yeah, and again, you know, just it doesn't make sense to me why the team that desperately needed a number one wide receiver drafted like a guy who's probably at best a wide receiver too. Um, But again, we've had that discussion a few times. So getting back to the Broncos, their schedule, if, if we had fans in the stands, I think their schedule works out fine for them. Um, Their first three games are kind of difficult. I feel like the first three is, is probably their most difficult stretch in terms of non-division teams. Uh, So they open with the Titans and then at Pittsburgh, Home against the Buccaneers, you know I think maybe they could go two and one. I think probably one and two is more realistic there. Um, then they have the at the Jets at the Patriots on back to back East Coast road trips. Home against the Dolphins. Home against the Chiefs. Week eight bye, and then at Atlanta at Las Vegas. Home against the Chargers. Home against the Saints. At the Chiefs. At the Panthers. Home against the Bills at the Chargers, and then they finish up home against the Raiders. Uh, so what kind of stands out to you about the Broncos' schedule this year?
1: Uh, we talked about the Raiders' schedule last time, and I think the schedule is much better uh, set up than the Raiders' schedule. Yeah. I mean, they play many of the same opponents, but I think it's a bit more balanced in terms of, like, the Raiders just have that brutal stretch at the beginning with so many top-tier teams that... It's like the first five or six weeks of the season are just, you know, uh, like, <laughs> something from hell. Uh, and, you know, this Broncos schedule isn't quite as bad. They start with the Titans, Steelers, box as we said. Then they play the Pats. The Chiefs are tough, but, you know, especially, I think their back half of the season uh, is a little, uh, not easier, but I think it's... Um, it's a bit, yeah, it's an evenly spread out schedule, so I don't think there's one stretch that's specifically harder than the rest, um, unlike the Raiders, and I, I would say even unlike the Chargers, because the Chargers do have that stretch, uh, towards the end of December, where they have that three straight games, uh, two of which are on the road, uh, I believe, with, uh, with their divisional games, so we'll see how that goes, um, But yeah, so far I like the Broncos' schedule better than I think the Chargers' schedule and I think the Raiders' schedule. Um, So I definitely think they have an advantage in that department.
2: Yeah, so for comparison, obviously we do have our Raiders episode up if you guys want to go and give that a listen. Um, But the Raiders' first five games is brutal, man. They open against the Panthers, home against the Saints, at the Patriots, home against the Bills, and then at the Chiefs. So I think like best case scenario there for the Raiders is probably one in four. So that's, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's much tougher. And I do agree with you. I think the Broncos schedule uh, works out nice. They have a lot of their tougher games at home. You know, they, mm-hmm. they play the Buccaneers at home. They play the Saints at home. They play the
1: Bills at home. So, and they actually have a home field advantage because it's physically harder to breathe yeah. over there, even with no fans. Yeah, even with no fans, they'll have <laughs> will have a,
2: a built in advantage with the altitude. So, I do agree mm. with you. I feel like the Broncos' schedule is probably the most favorable of of the division. You know, I think the Chiefs have have quite a bit, a few games in, uh, that kind of would give me pause, including at the Ravens. So, uh, in terms of the most favorable division schedule, I think it's pretty easily the Broncos. Um, and again, really this whole season, like we talked about with Travis, is just gonna come down to Drew Locke, really, and how uh Drew Locke is if he's able to develop it and be consistent on a weekly basis, they'll be fine. If not and he struggles out of the gate, I think, you know, the Broncos could be in for another, you know, six and ten, seven and nine type season.
1: Yeah, the Drew Locke thing is interesting just because it's such a tough thing for him because, you know, we talk about that second year of development being so important, right? We talked about it with Trey Pipkins. We've talked about it with Jerry Tillery um, on the Chargers, uh, Drew Tranquil, right? So we talked about those guys that are going in their second years. But I think it's even more important when you're going into your second year as a quarterback, uh, starting quarterback now, and yeah, I mean, he just didn't didn't really get any reps all year. Uh, I mean, you know, all all season until training camp started. So that's that's a difficult situation to be in. Um, and uh, you know, Denver obviously got a bunch of new weapons you know with Jerry, uh, Jerry Judy, KJ Hamler, Melvin Gordon. Uh, and I think you know he would have uh, liked, and the Broncos would have liked uh, Drew Locke to spend more time uh, you know, in a world without, COVID with those weapons and working with them and, you know, seeing how everything kind of fits together, but they're kind of going to be jumping in head first.
2: Yeah. And I I think another thing to point out about Drew Locke is that he spent, you know, most of the year on injured reserve last year. You know, it wasn't until they were able to activate him off of injured Uh, reserve. So,
1: you know, he. he... Go ahead. No, no, you go.
2: I was just going to say, you know, because he was on injured reserve, he doesn't even have that. Much of uh, an experienced relationship with Cortland Sutton and Noah Fant. So, you know, in an, op- an offseason where there was no offseason, I'm a little bit concerned about, you know, the chemistry and, and how the Broncos will distribute targets. And, you know, Cortland Sutton thinks he's the number one r- wide receiver, but what happens if, you know, Jerry Judy leads the team in targets and how does that mesh in the locker room? Or what happens if Noah Fant is, is the pop guy in the league and, and goes off for 75 catches and 900 yards and 12 touchdowns or something? So there's just a lot of moving parts on the Broncos offense and they're all so young that there are so many different outcomes that are possible with this team. You know, absolutely Drew Locker pop and they could go, you know, 11 and 5, 10 and 6 and make the playoffs, maybe win a game. But it's also possible that they don't gel at all together and they go 5 and 11 or 6 and 10. So I think the Broncos have the most uh, different outcomes this year than any of the team in the divisions because, you know, they are all so young. They are all so brand new. There's no chemistry there. So, um, like I said, it's just all going to come down to that and how Drew Locke is able to kind of put it all together.
1: Yeah, another possibility is, like, what if Melvin Gordon gets one less carry than Philip Lindsay in the first game and <laughs> then he goes on a Twitter rant? <laughs> oh, man. That,
2: like, as talent... You know, I think Melvin Gordon and Philip Lindsay in a different world could you know fit together, but neither one is really like a pass catching running back. Like I know Melvin can do that, but mm-hmm. in my opinion, they're both better on first and second down than they are on third down. And
1: right. He can, he can catch it. It's just that he would fumble it. After <laughs> <his>. <laughs> right. Um, so that's the thing is like, yeah, with... it's, it's, yeah, it's a weird relationship. Um, I, I don't know quite how it's going to work out. It's it's one of the reasons I wasn't so in favor of Melvin Gordon as opposed to getting, you know, some pass-catching running back or some depth running back in the draft. Um, but, yeah, may, maybe in the style of, like, uh, Joshua Kelly, right? Uh, maybe not in that style, but someone who is, like, kind of a running back who's willing to do a little bit of everything, whereas Gordon is kind of, at this point in his career, I feel like pretty defined as a downhill runner. So... Yeah, I, I think it's an interesting mesh, and it might just be a situation where um, having guys who do the same thing works out. But yeah, I, I would have liked to seen them go for a running back that is more of Austin Eckler style. Um, I'm trying to think of some other, uh, not McCaffrey because McCaffrey's too dominant, but someone with maybe like a McCaffrey Eckler like a James White type um, thing, pass catching ability.
2: Yeah, so. Uh, we'll see. I, hopefully, you guys were able to kind of uh, learn from the uh, opposing division teams' writers and kind of have some good takeaways and good preparation going into the season. I do think uh, the division is going to be much better in 2020 than it is in 2000 than it was in 2019. Um, but I agree with you. I think it's it's pretty set in stone that, um, well, at least the things we know are set in stone is that the Chiefs should be one and the Raiders should be four um and then you know well the broncos in charge will have a good battle to to duke it out to see who maybe gets
1: that that last wild card spot um this is going to be a nightmare when mahomes's kneecap goes again and the raiders win the division <laughs> because
2: 2020 has been the year of the unpredictable
1: so you know where the raiders <laughs> yeah. winning the division would just be the icing on
2: top of the 2020 disaster cake
1: And then you have to go back through all my audio on John Gruden and (laughs) make me (laughs) apologize.
2: Oh, man. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, Any other thoughts before we wrap up today?
1: I did want to mention, uh, we forgot to mention this a little bit earlier in the show, but I did want to talk about uh, Melvin Ingram. uh, Because last time we talked about him on the show, we had the news that he was practicing, uh, but we didn't know what came with that. But then we got a report uh, later that day, or maybe I don't remember if it was that day or the next day, uh, that we found out that Melvin Ingram signed uh, a revamped contract for 2020 that would see him earn uh, all of his money guaranteed. Uh, so I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, so we recorded on Thursday. Um, we knew that he was practicing, and we kind of speculated that you know maybe they did come to an agreement. Um, and then Mike Garofolo of... Uh, NFL Network was the first one to report it that they did amend the contract. Um, to me, it makes too much. It made too much sense to get this done, and, and you know you want a guy like Melvin Ingram to be taken care of, especially in the year of COVID, where the season could go up in flames in any at any moment. So, the thing with guaranteed money is that if you make the roster, you play the games, then you obviously make the money. But you know, if after four or five games. You know, disaster strikes, then Melvin Ingram's out a lot of money because his money was not guaranteed. So um, it just makes too much sense to have a guy like Melvin Ingram on a guaranteed contract. Um, You take care of your own, and that's really the biggest message that uh, has kind of come out this offseason with all the different contract extensions and things like that. You know, Tom Telesco wants to take care of his own, he wants to build through the draft, he wants to keep the players around and ultimately take care of his own. And I think that is just another um, another instance in which he has conveyed that message. All right. Cool. Well, sounds good. Uh, make sure you guys leave us a rating or review on whichever podcast platform you listen to us. Uh, don't forget that once we get to 110 ratings, Alex will do a headstand. Of approximately 30 <laughs> minutes, or at least attempt to do so. <laughs> so uh, make sure and check that out. And uh, obviously, follow us on social media. Thanks for tuning in. That'll do it for this episode. We'll see you next time.
3: This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming.